if we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Yes, indeed, and a good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. <clears throat> Seven minutes, <clears throat> excuse me, after the hour of nine o'clock, and we are underway on this Wednesday edition of the Authority. It is the twelfth morning of the fifth month of the year of our Lord 2021, <clears throat> and we are loaded for bear today. Three tremendous guests on three tremendously important issues coming up on the program. In about a half an hour at 9.35, we're going to talk to an uh, an attorney, excuse me, an author named Kenny Su. Kenny is an Asian-American, a Chinese-American, a lifelong Chinese-American, who has written a book that blows virtually every um, argument about critical race theory, about um, white supremacy, about equity, that any and every far leftist in the United States has ever argued right out of the water. His book is called An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy. His argument is a well-known one to people who actually pay attention. Those on the left who continue to argue against uh, the, the United States of America as a fair and equality-based nation, the greatest nation on earth for people of all colors, of all races, all ethnicities, all creeds, to come to the United States and succeed in extraordinary ways, the argument that the United States is tilted toward white supremacy and that racial and ethnic minorities don't have a fair shot here. It's just blown up, destroyed, by an inconvenient minority, the Asian-American minority. It's a very small sliver of the 330 million people in this country, the population of Asian-Americans. It's a very, very small number. And yet somehow this minority manages to exceed the expectations of their own and of, quite frankly, what society would think that a minority group is capable of. I mean, it's really an amazing thing. You hear this constant drumbeat of people who are are of brown skin or black skin or other minority ethnic status can't succeed because of the white supremacist world, yet here... 
is a minority group, very specific and very small, that manages to accomplish all of the above, despite the white supremacy. Which is why the far left has decided that the Asian population is actually more white than minority. Yeah, Asians are like white people now. They're just proof that you can't get a fair shake in this country unless you are white. Even if you're not white, but we're going to call you white. His book and his articles and his work are exceptional. And they're exceptionally important right now. The United States is a meritocracy. If you work as hard as you possibly can, you can attain all of the goals that you have based on your own merit, not based on things being given to you because of your minority status. You are not supposed to be aided by your minority status, and you are not supposed to be held back or held down because of your minority status. And the Asian American success story in this country is proof that it works. So Kenny Sue will be joining us at 9.35. At 10.10, Stephanie Stock, who founded Ohio Advocates for Medical Freedom, hugely popular on Facebook. An organization, Ohio Advocates for Medical Freedom, that continue to fight for our freedom from masks, from um, unconstitutional and overly aggressive COVID-19 responses, and now the propaganda for getting vaccinated with an experimental drug that's not actually a vaccine. Ohio advocates for medical freedom were arguing and making extraordinary headway in convincing people that they really need to do their homework and study before they decide to go ahead and either get themselves or their children or their elderly loved ones vaccinated. So they were making great headway, which is exactly why Facebook had to cancel them. Facebook pulled their very popular page down with no explanation whatsoever. Stephanie Stock will give an explanation coming up at 1010. Then at 1035, another local activist organization off, Ohioans for Freedom, Melanie Stolarski. This is the group that I told you about that does the uh, shopping thing. They do. They shop in crowds without masks. They go into stores where people are afraid to go in by themselves without their mask, even though they really do not believe in this. They don't like the confrontation. They don't want to get into an argument. They certainly don't want to be put on somebody's viral video. But you know what? When you shop in numbers and you express yourself in such a way, not only do you feel safer, you also encourage other people who are in there who don't want to be behind those ridiculous face diapers any more than you do. And they see a bunch of people coming in without them, and they say, yeah, and they take them off themselves. Melanie Stolarski will be joining us to talk about a couple of very important events that her group, Ohioans for Freedom, have going on as well. So there you have it. We're going to talk to Kenny Sue. We're going to talk to uh, Stephanie Stock and Melanie Stolarski this morning on AM 1420, The Answer. But we will do nothing before we start our day the way we always do, with our Pledge of Allegiance. Patriots, please stand at attention. Put your hand on your heart. Leftists, go ahead and take that knee as we say our pledge. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice. Amen to that. Speaking of taking a knee, I want to start with this story just because it's so ridiculous. First of all, as you know, probably, 
I've been doing radio for about 24 years now uh, in this industry, and almost all of them here in Cleveland. I've moved around the country for various opportunities, but uh, the vast majority right here, I did sports radio before I started doing news and more important uh, uh, conservative uh, radio. Uh, so this is going to be kind of hearkening back to my sports days. I'm going to talk about Tim Tebow, and I'm going to talk about Colin Kaepernick. Have you have you heard what's going on? Colin Kaepernick, as you know, was the most famous kneeler. He was the OG. That's original original gangsta kneeler. He was the one, uh, the uh, a biracial quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, who back about five years ago started kneeling during the playing of the National Anthem until he was asked about it, and then he expressed his disgust for the United States of America, calling it a systemically racist country with police brutality and slave history and this, that, and the other. And he was going to kneel in solidarity with or to protest, basically, uh, I don't know, the entire country. To do it during the national anthem, of course, was seen by many, in fact, by most, to be denigrating the sacrifice made by the patriots, the sacrifice made by the heroes, the sacrifice made by America's uh, bravest uh, among us, those who have fought and bled and died to preserve this wonderful uh, republic, this this capitalist republic that uh, provides people with more freedom than anywhere in the world. And to do so, again, during the national anthem to make his protest, it, it bothered a lot of veterans groups. It bothered a lot of conservative groups. So anyway, we know the story from there. <clears throat> Colin Kaepernick at the end of the 2016 season, I think it was, walked away from his contract. He was offered a contract, or had a contract, rather, and he wanted to leave, thinking, yeah, I beg your pardon, I don't want to say he walked away from a contract. He was a free agent and walked away from the San Francisco 49ers, thinking he would be more valuable on the open market, that he could make more money. In other words, Colin Kaepernick was embracing, say it with me, capitalism. He was going to go and play for the highest amount that the market would bear. It's capitalism, that which he despises. Colin Kaepernick has more communist leanings. Colin Kaepernick would make that clear by wearing Castro shirts to press conferences, honoring the oppressive, human rights-violating, mass-murdering tyrant dictator of Cuba, who put the people of Cuba... Uh, in in prisons for political crimes, for disagreeing with the government, starving his people, etc., etc., etc. So he praised Castro and Castro's Cuba while condemning the United States. Anyway, he walked away but found no takers. Nobody offered him a new, new contract. Nobody wanted him. So he and the left used that to say, aha, there's proof. He was right about systemic racism in America. This this biracial quarterback can't even get a job in the NFL. He's been blackballed because of his color and because of his views and because of systemic racism. Furthermore, the left went on to argue almost incomprehensibly and absurdly. How dare you criticize him for taking a knee? Remember Tim Tebow? Tim Tebow, when he was in the NFL, always took a knee. <laughs> Tim Tebow, for those who may not be aware, uh, was a, one of the most highly decorated college football players in history. A Heisman Trophy winner, a two-time national champion, uh, just one of, you know, even today considered. Uh, his pro career didn't pan out, but even today considered one of the greatest players in college football history. Was known more 
for his devout Christianity than for his play. Seriously. This is a guy that, while still in college, would spend time in his offseason preaching to prisoners. He would go to prisons throughout Florida and try to spread the word of God, to try to convert people to the faith of Christianity. I mean, this is, a, this is what this guy is, right? He's the real deal. He didn't do it with cameras following him. It was found out that he did those things after the fact. He did them in privacy. Anyway, Tim Tebow, when he did go come to the National Football League, did routinely take a knee. But not in protest, but in prayer. Which is not even that uncommon. There are a lot of Christians and a lot of believers who take knees and say prayers either before games, sometimes in a group huddle, after games, or whatever the case may be, not in protest during the national anthem. So anyway, let's bring it current. Tim Tebow has not played in the National Football League for about six years. He became a commentator for college football games and... Because he used to be a really great high school player, he got an opportunity to play in the minor league system with the New York Mets to see if he could maybe, you know, launch a baseball career since his football career as a quarterback did not pan out. Uh, But an injury cut short that dream, and now he's thinking about football again. Well, his former coach at the University of Florida, where he was one of the greatest players in college football history, is Urban Meyer. That's the former Ohio State coach as well. He's now the head coach of the NFL's Jacksonville Jaguars. Tebow's relationship with Meyer is well known to be just extraordinary. Meyer wants him to be a part of the Jaguars. He wants him to bring his winning attitude and his incredible leadership abilities to the Jaguars. So they have signed him to a one-year non-guaranteed contract to come and not play quarterback but play tight end. So let's again bring this current now. The left is going apoplectic over this. Clearly, Tim Tebow, who hasn't played in over six years, clearly Tim Tebow only is being brought in because he's white. Whereas Colin Kaepernick, who hasn't played in five years, still can't find a team to play on. Wonder why? What's the difference? Colin Kaepernick, of course, has brown skin. Colin Kaepernick wears a really big, outsized afro. Colin Kaepernick scares people. So he can't get a job in the NFL, but Tim Tebow can get a job when he hasn't played in the league even in even longer than Kaepernick has. I bring up their absurd comparison and their absurd anger only so that I can dismantle it very quickly and very simply. What's the difference between Colin Kaepernick who hasn't played in about five years, and Tim Tebow, who hasn't played in over six years. The difference is one of them wants to play football and the other one doesn't. Colin Kaepernick has been given multiple opportunities to try out for teams, to work out for teams, to work out for the league. They organized a personal workout session so that every scout from every team about a year and a half ago could come and watch him and see what he still has to see if they want to sign him. You know what he did? He tanked the tryout. He shows up wearing the Castro shirts. Uh, he shows up, um, uh, uh, you know, essentially out of shape, showing a lack of respect. Shows up late. That was the other thing, too. Shows up an hour and a half late, then moves the venue to another place to make the teams follow him, all designed to tick off the rest of the teams. He doesn't want to play. How do you know he doesn't want to play? Well, because he is making more money as an activist and as a Nike spokesman for wokeness than he ever could anymore in the National Football League. Second of all, he insists that if he gets signed by anyone, he wants to be the starting quarterback. 
He won't take a job as a backup. Well, nobody's going to sign this guy to be a starting quarterback under these conditions, ever. Now over to Tim Tebow. He's a quarterback, too. But he doesn't care if he gets to play quarterback anymore. If he can get a spot on a team to help a team win, he'll play tight end. He's willing to do whatever it takes. One guy wants to play. The other guy doesn't want to play. And to the left, the fact that the one guy who wants to play is getting a chance to play is an example of racism because the other guy who doesn't want to play isn't playing. This is how insane the left is. Twitter has exploded. Tim Tebow finding a team and Colin Kaepernick can't. White privilege, NFL style. Tebow can't throw, never could, never played tight end, and hasn't played in, what, eight years? Explain it to me like I'm five. One of the blue checkmark Twitter's, Twitter uh, outragers expressed. I'll explain it to you like you're five. Tim Tebow wants to play. He's willing to play any position for a, a minimum amount of money. Colin Kaepernick doesn't want to play. Would only play quarterback for a massive maximum contract, which nobody is willing to give to him. Is that good enough for you? If it's still a little bit too difficult, I'll try to explain it to you like you're two on the other side. 216-901-0945, This is The Authority. So this is the kind of nonsense you get, you know, in in the woke world. Everything is upside down. Everything is upside down. Seriously. Tebow hasn't played in the NFL since 2012. Gets another shot. 2012, that'd be nine years. I've read six, but whatever, doesn't matter. Kaepernick hasn't played since 2016, gets nothing. What's the difference? Can't seem to put my finger on it, said one Twitter user, uh, showing side-by-side pictures of Tebow and Kaepernick. Of course, insinuating the difference between them is white and black. There's no way that you can tell me Tim Tebow deserves to be on a team as an unproven tight end who hasn't played in nine years more than Colin Kaepernick. There's just no way that's going to make sense. Another person reacted, well, that, of course, is because you are senseless. It cannot make sense to a senseless person. Tim Tebow is willing to play anywhere just to get on a roster for the league minimum on a one-year contract. If Colin Kaepernick went to a GM and said, hey, I'll play any position you want for one year, non-guaranteed, by the way, he's not guaranteed to make the team and even make that money, but bring me in on a one-year, non-guaranteed minimum salary contract track and I'll play wherever you want, who knows, maybe somebody would bring him aboard. Colin Kaepernick has made it clear. He wants nothing except a starter's position and a massive contract. He knows nobody's going to give it to him. That enables him to say, I've been blackballed because of my race. Please give me more money, Nike. Please give me more awards, Sports Illustrated. He's become a professional protester. And it's paying off for him handsomely, and he doesn't have to get hit by blitzing outside linebackers. He's found a way to make a ton of money without having to actually play the game. He doesn't want to play the game, and yet here is... You know, the far left on Twitter saying that this is an example of Kaepernick being blackballed and white supremacy running rampant. Tim Tebow hasn't played football in six years and will be 34 heading into training camp, and he just signed with the Jags. From here on out, I don't ever want to hear another word about how Colin Kaepernick isn't good enough for another shot in the NFL. Another leftist blue check mark said. 
Interesting how the same people that are praising Tim Tebow for his values outside of football see Colin Kaepernick's values as a distraction. Well, let's see. Kneeling in prayer. Kneeling and calling the United States a systemically racist country with police brutality rampant. Hmm. Which one of those would be considered a distraction? I don't know. I can't put my finger on it, as you would say. But no one will sign Colin Kaepernick because he hasn't played in forever, and he would be a distraction, another mocked. That is correct. No one will sign Colin Kaepernick because he hasn't played in forever and does not want to play anymore. And yes, would make it a point of being a distraction. So Tim Tebow is going to be back in the NFL, or at least during training camp. He's going to be given an opportunity. He will be there as one of about 100 guys fighting for a roster spot of just 55. Will he make it? Only time will tell. Is he willing to do whatever it takes? Yes. Is that in any way, shape, or form racist or an example of white supremacy? Well, you be the judge. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about race in America, but not the type you're thinking of. When we talk to an author named Kenny Sue, the author of An Inconvenient Minority, they attack on Asian American excellence and the fight for meritocracy. That's next on 1420 The Answer. There are two sides to every story. There's the mainstream media side, and then there's the truth. You are experiencing the truth. The Bob France Authority. On AM 1420, The Answer. Yeah, you can believe it. Uh, Truth still exists, and we continue to preach it each and every day on AM 1420, The Answer. Let's talk about the truth about race in America. You know, we talk about critical race theory, and everybody automatically goes to black-white. And, of course, it is driven by primarily Black Lives Matter-type organizations and that uh, uh, the 1619 Project, the fictional work that argues that America was not founded in 1776 on liberty, but in 1619 on slavery, uh, and goes on to uh, project the idea that America is a systemically racist nation to this very day, keeping people who are minorities down, only white people taking advantage of white privilege and white supremacy can succeed in this country. And yet, somehow, some way, there is a minority group, which is a tiny percentage of the 330 million Americans, that somehow is finding the, the finding a way to succeed. In fact, finding a way to excel. In fact, finding a way to eclipse white Americans with all of their privilege. And that's why some people refer to them as an inconvenient minority. Because Asian Americans, unlike African Americans, Latino Americans, and other ethnicities, have not found a, an excuse yet to stop them from achieving. They just go on and achieve anyway. An Inconvenient Minority is the name of the book, written by Kenny Shu. An Inconvenient Minority, subtitled The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy. What an important word that is. Kenny Shu joins us now on AM 1420, The Answer. Good morning, Kenny. How are you, sir? Good morning, Bob. I'm doing great. I'll tell you what, I, I, I can't wait to read your book. I only became aware of your book through uh, one of your PR folks yesterday. I read a little bit uh, of excerpts uh, that I could, and... This topic is so extraordinarily important, especially right now, as governors all over the country and red states continue to, and legislatures, uh, continue to try to ban the teaching of the destructive critical race theory, which just lumps everyone into a category, a category of oppressor or oppressed. 
And Kenny, you know, the Asian American community has apparently flipped. They used to be considered the oppressed until they started doing really, really well at stuff, especially like school. Uh, now they are white, and Asian Americans are part of the oppressor category. Um, that is an inconvenient minority, isn't it? Well, yes. And the, the funny thing about this whole critical race theory ideology is that Asian Americans form, I think, one of the most potent counter-arguments against the whole idea of critical race theory. Right? Because Asian Americans, as I articulate in my book, An Inconvenient Minority, Asian Americans have faced historical discrimination and racism in the United States. I mean, the Chinese Exclusion Act banned Chinese Americans from coming in the late 1800s to the U.S., Japanese internment, everything like that. Asian Americans have been a historically marginalized group. However, despite all of that, Asian Americans in today's America have been able to achieve at a rate that is even higher than white Americans in many socioeconomic educational indicators of higher rates of bachelor's degrees, lower rates of divorce, lower rates of crime. And this just, it poses an inconvenience to the progressive narrative on race because the progressives want to believe that your race has to define your success and that you have to take advantage of white supremacy. But Asian Americans are not taking advantage of white supremacy to succeed. They're simply working hard and, and adopting critical American values that need to be reformulated in today's society. That is exactly the message. And, you know, it's, um, it's an amazing thing. You have done an extraordinary amount of work studying the case, the Harvard case, uh, Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard, in which it was proven that uh, Harvard was selectively um, passing over Asian Americans who qualify for admission in their freshman classes for a period of years because the campus was becoming too Asian. They wanted equity. They wanted an equal distribution of all of the races. In other words, they didn't want to admit people into one of the most prestigious academic institutions in the country based on their academic qualifications. They wanted it based on what they looked like. They, they made their admissions decisions not based on, uh, based on meritocracy, but on inclusion and equity. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, and, and what your listeners should understand about critical race theory is that critical race theory stems from Harvard University. The whole idea of what we are seeing today, the idea of whites as oppressors and or as constantly oppressors, not individuals, but the entire race of white people as oppressors, mm-hmm. stem from critical legal studies formulated by Harvard Law School back in the 1970s. Harvard has been steeped, and the Ivy League has been steeped, in this tradition of dividing people into black and white for a very long time. And what happens is that they structure their entire university according to the same lines, including their admissions policies. So their admissions policies, of course, for the sake of diversity and inclusion, but really grounded in critical race theory. They're trying to elevate certain minorities above others, and they want to elevate uh, lesser qualified black and Hispanic minorities over more qualified whites, and importantly, Asian Americans, because they view Asians as on the side of the oppressor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kenny, let, let's let's explore that a little bit more because that's something that has fascinated mm-hmm. me as we've watched all of this kind of stuff play out over the last few years. We're talking to Kenny Shu. He is a journalist and an author. Uh, he is also uh, uh, a member of. Uh, 
uh, a development officer, rather, at the Young Americas Foundation, which is an extraordinarily important organization teaching young people about conservatism and, quite frankly, about just constitutionalism. Uh, Kenny, let's explore that more because Asians seem to be a very convenient prop for those on the far left. When we see what they call um, a rise in Asian American hate crimes or crimes committed against Asian Americans, they usually try to say, see, this is what privileged supremacist white America does. They abuse people. And they did so, by the way. They abuse people based on their ethnicity because former President Trump called it the China virus. Former President Trump called it the China flu or even the, the Kung flu. And that led to a rise in hatred and hate crimes against Asian Americans. So when it's convenient for them, you're a part of the minority group at the mercy of white privilege and white supremacy. Yet, when it comes to the things we're talking about, when it comes to admissions and everything else, well, that's not an example of a minority group succeeding educationally and economically and, and, and overreaching and, uh, you know, and, and achieving things that they, they ordinarily wouldn't be able to. They're white anyway. They're just like white people. They have white privilege. Asian privilege is white privilege. Isn't it interesting how Asians are just like white people when it's convenient for the left or they're really like black and brown people and minorities uh, when it's convenient for the left? <laughs> yes. I mean, you see, this is Asian Americans are, are pigeonholed repeatedly in the, in the political conversation, and partially it's because they've lacked a political voice in America for a very long time. And for a while, they were able to get away with that, as I articulate in my book, in the sense that, hey, you focus on working hard, you focus on keeping your head down working, and uh, you, can, you can usually do fine in this country, except this country is making a dangerous turn. Um, it is making a dangerous turn where it is turning against the principles of meritocracy that have made it great. And as I talk about in my book, An Inconvenient Minority, um, China right now, uh, an emerging... Uh, tech competition with China, an emerging trade um, competition with China and India uh, requires us to hire and develop the best qualified people regardless of their background. And yet critical race ideology is anti-merit. It's anti-skills. It says if you have skills, if you choose to work hard, you are engaging in white supremacy or in white supremacist action. Imagine how demeaning that is to young minority children who want to believe in a country where they can work hard and they succeed. That country is there. It exists. But they're being taught that if they work hard and they succeed, they're being just like the white oppressor. And who wants to be like the white oppressor? That's a great point. Um, Kenny, tell me, tell me how this helps minority children, uh, particularly black and brown minorities, not so much Asian minorities, but as they were referred to as black and brown minorities, to cancel uh, advanced and accelerated math courses the way they're doing in Virginia because of equity, because these classes are populated almost exclusively, almost, by whites and Asians. And not enough black and brown people qualify for those classes or even maybe want to take those classes, and it looks really, really bad. The color scheme is off here, so we're going to cancel those classes so that it doesn't make one race look bad or make, uh, make a, a race of people uh, feel inferior. Does that help anybody? Well, that's, that's, that's the thing, um, because uh, in New York City, um, they tried a program where they, where they did eliminate gifted and talented middle schools. They eliminated four, by the way, New York City's public school system is 83% minority, majority black and brown. Mm-hmm. And 
they eliminated gifted programs in the late 80s and 90s. And since then, you've seen the public education system in New York City, especially math education, um, just turn in a horrible, horrible direction for these kids, for these kids who need math help more than any, almost more than anybody else. Um, they're, even though 90% of the kids pass their math, uh, math grade, um, are moved from grade to grade and pass them in New York City, only 2 to 15% in some of these middle schools of these kids um, pass the standardized math exam. And it's just, and how are you going to be able to compete in the workforce to work your way up to get a good professional job if you don't, if you lack even basic proficient math skills? And, and so the elimination of these gifted and talented programs and the attempt to put everything in the context of equity rather than excellence damages these young minority children. And it's horrifying, and I need to stand against it. You wrote an article, Kenny Shu, uh, journalist and author. Uh, Kenny's book, You Really Need to Get, I Need to Get. Again, I haven't read it yet. I've just read the excerpts and done the homework that I can with a press kit. An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy. It's more, Kenny, uh, than just about eliminating math programs that are accelerated in the name of equity. You wrote an article a couple of days ago uh, that I read uh, about what they're doing in California, something called Numbers Talk. Now we're talking about not just eliminating uh, advanced and accelerated math courses. We're changing math answers as long as somebody can defend, and I'm, I'm really loosely paraphrasing this, but as long as somebody can defend how they got to their answer, they don't have to have the right answers. Is, is that also in the, in, in the advancement of equity? Well, so they're very sneaky. Um, they're very sneaky about this. is California's proposed so-called inclusive math curriculum made the principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and they're, they say, hey, the focus, they explicitly say in this curriculum, focusing on getting one right answer is damaging to students. So we're going to ask answers to defend themselves uh, on their answers that they give, which is, um, which is fine if you were, you know, making an argumentation class, if you were debating both sides of an issue, or, you know, if you're handling those kinds of matters. But for math, for a question like 18 times 5, do you really want students to get up, you know, five or six students get up and put wrong answers on the board and and then have them defend it and embarrass themselves in front of the entire class? Do you think that's going to help someone's self-confidence to be able to do math correctly? Or is it just a ploy to make teachers feel better? Well, that's it's not even feel better. I dare I suggest that the the teachers probably don't like this any more than 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 the students do. It's what they're being told to do, right? Because the teachers aren't making these decisions themselves. These things are being made in political offices. These these things these decisions are being made in legislative offices and and in teachers unions meetings maybe. Uh but this idea of changing math so that more uh, you know, people of color or minorities can pass it uh, by helping them, you know, oh, there's a good reason why you got that answer, even if it's wrong. We're going to give you a passing grade here. I don't think teachers like that, do they? Yeah, and, and what, you need to, what your listeners should understand, mm-hmm. um, which I also talk about in, in Inconvenient Minority, what your listeners should understand is that this, this whole idea of inclusive math and diversity, equity, and inclusion um, is basically... There are many people who are trying to, to argue for this, 
But among the educational community, the people who are arguing for this are arguing for this largely because, you know, they are frustrated with um, the achievement gap between black and Hispanic students in these schools and white and Asian students. And instead of trying to solve the problem and dig into their own communities and dig into their own schools and say, how can we emulate some of the practices of these more successful academically communities, they want to eliminate the idea of achievement itself. They want to say, oh, it's just too much pressure to ask an eighth grader to take Algebra one, or it's just too much pressure to ask a 12th grader to take calculus. So they're trying to, so they're basically trying to water down math education to boost their statistics and passing rates and make their own schools look decent when in fact they're not. Kenny, uh, we're just about out of time here. Kenny Shu, really, really appreciate this great conversation, an important conversation, and the arguments made in your book, An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy. I want to wrap, though, uh, with a question just about the perception of Asian Americans. Um, because we are in, you know, maybe the beginning stages and maybe a little bit, little bit further than that, if you will, uh, of a sort of a cold war with communist China. Um, you know, it's not just what happened in the Wuhan lab and the debate and the argument over that. Uh, it is about a lot of other things. You know, we of course had the trade wars going on in Terrace when President Trump was trying to equal the playing field or level a playing field. And, uh, quite frankly, communist China scares a lot of people. Do you think there's any reason for Chinese Americans or Asian Americans in general to be concerned uh, because of the the rising rhetoric between the two nations? Yeah, sure. And and by the way, thank you for, for plugging the book. Um, if your listeners want to pre-order, um, it would really help because um, if you can get those first week sales up, you can really make a difference in the, uh, in the book world and expose this issue to a wider populace. Uh, in terms of the um, competition between the U.S. and China and how ordinary Chinese Americans can make a difference, ordinary Chinese Americans, especially of the older generation, have lived through Mao Zedong's Cultural Revolution. And the Cultural Revolution was an anti-excellence uh, ideology based upon the same ideas that critical race theory is based upon today. Instead of, except instead of using race, because obviously most Chinese people look, uh, are not of different races, they used privileged and oppressed classes. The intellectuals are part of the privileged class, the so-called rightists, which are basically anybody that Mao didn't like, or Mao's officials didn't like, or part of the oppressor class, um, and they tortured them. They had red guards come over there and they beat them up with sticks. Uh, they stoned them. Uh, they forced many to flee into exile. And by the way, they destroyed their economy of excellence. China was unable to produce anything um, anything significant technologically. One of the greatest civilizations the world has ever seen was, was unable to produce, was in, unable to play a significant role and for 50 years. And they're still reeling from that today, by the way. So the Chinese Americans can do a good job, hopefully, of warning the American populace about what happens when you tread down this dangerous path. 
This is uh, only the beginning of a conversation that I would like to extend another day, uh, Kenny, because what, you're, what we're talking about right now is huge, maybe even more so than just uh, you know the meritocracy we're talking about in your book. So I would love to have you back on again. Uh, I will do exactly what you said and encourage people to pre-order uh, Kenny's book. You can find it at Amazon. I'm staring at it right now. It's called An Inconvenient Minority. Uh, the actual release is July 13th, but you can pre-order now. An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy. Kenny, it's okay if we call on you again to talk about these issues? Let's, let's do it again. Thank you. Let, let's definitely plan that. Thank to. you. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you. All right, that's Kenny Shue. Uh, it's uh, 9.54. We're a little late. We'll come right back. Okay, 9.58. Uh, short segment here, obviously, before we... Uh, get to our news at the top of the hour thanks again to kenny shu you got to read that book i've got to read that book i got a lot of books i have to read because i get a lot of great authors here but um, that one is very important you want to understand critical race theory stop looking at it through the lens of just black and white and look at it through the lenses of other uh ethnic minorities uh it, it's a startling thing you know i didn't ask kenny shu the one question that i wish i had time for and that is why is one ethnic minority which is what Asians in America are. I don't know what percentage it is. I have to look at the census and see what percentage is. I think it's around 70% white, uh, 13% black. I want to say 6% uh, Latino. I don't know where Asians fit into that. But it's a pretty small number, I believe, in terms of the overall population. And yet they manage, despite their minority status, to rise and to succeed and to exceed and to surpass um, white Americans in terms of economic uh, 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 accomplishments and achievements, educational and so forth. Why is one minority group able to do it better than another? If the country is the same, and if the country is systemically racist, which it is not, how can one culture slash ethnicity say, we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and get it done? And another culture says, you can't do that. It's not possible to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Somebody has to help us. Why? What is the difference? And I suspect I know the answer. I do. It is cultural. It is family-related. It is what Larry Elder talks about on a nightly basis. If you haven't heard him, you should. Maybe we'll talk more about that later. For now, it's 10 o'clock time for news. We'll come back.